Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 15 The Second Heart Seed Jan, without meaning to, had reached out with her body toward Dane, had stood and walked to him, offering the sleeve of her tunic to clean his cheek. When her thought caught up to her, she already stood before him. She half drew her extended arm back in embarrassment, what, she would wipe his face as though he were a child? But had passed too deep into the gesture to recall it unnoticed. Then she forgot about herself, suddenly, her heart twisting painfully to see tears in his eyes. I know, she said impulsively. I know. He looked up at her with surprise just as he had that day in the forest shelter when she asked if he had felt alone going to the goddess. Again the strange comradeship, the keen shared understanding, the deep pull of gratitude that he felt for it startled him with its force, and he managed to murmur thank you and sit down. Toman, too, had risen. He offered Dane a small cloth to clean the spittle from his cheek. Truly, it is a shame to my house that you should... But the words hung unfinished, and he seemed to forget where he was for a time, standing lost and still. He tried to continue... That, having come in good faith, you should... But he could not seem to complete his thought. Please, said Dane, you need not. It is not shame. It is grief. He was quiet for a moment, then said, I know grief. And yet my wife has wounded you. Toman said, indicating Dane's tears. No. Dane looked confused for a moment, then lifted a hand to his eyes, as though only then realizing that he had wept. I do not weep for me, he said finally, quietly. Toman, he said after some silence, will you tell me? What happened to your son? You did not wish to when we spoke on the journey here, and if you still should not desire it, I will not ask it of you. But if you are able... 
I think it would be well that I know. Toman did not respond, seeming not to have heard. Lara shifted her legs to curl beneath her body, and the winter lion gave a low purr, rearranged its head and paws, and lay down once more on her lap. Then Toman said, with odd brusqueness, He died seven winters past in the early spring. He was four. He ran from the house to greet Nyssa as she came home. He slipped on ice. Toman paused, and his face was blank as though he wore a mask. Some minutes passed in silence. Lara thought he would not speak again. Then, without warning, he continued, The fall should not have killed him, but he fell wrong. His body weight drove the bone of his nose into his brain. He bled to death in her arms before help could come. She took the body, and I do not know where she buried him. She came home to me the next day, still with his blood on her clothing. An ugly and heavy quiet descended on the room and its occupants. How should I speak? Toman whispered. How should I speak to my wife of a death so empty of meaning? His face had broken, and he was weeping. The pale brows twisted and worked to contain the emotion. He lowered his voice until it was barely audible. How shall I tell it to myself? Lara lay awake that night for some time before she could fall asleep. She thought she heard Jan beside her breathing regularly, steadily, easily, and envied her. But for herself, she could not seem to quiet her mind. Memories of the confrontation downstairs replayed there, and thoughts and worries troubled her. Amid them, sharp and ragged like the peak of a young mountain stood the memory of Nyssa's words. Why has he withheld what we needed and then come to demand our hearts? He shall not get mine. You see, Lara thought in the darkness, the bulk of her winter lion stretched beside her on the wide bed, I've held back for good reason. I knew he could not be trusted. 
I do not know what game he plays, feeding and giving life with the one hand, taking it with the other. Who would entrust such a creature with her hearts? Not that she felt a great deal of grief for Nyssa, Tolman, and their young son whose dark winter lion prowled the halls seeking him. Somehow, when she turned her thoughts toward them, she felt nothing, only numbness, the absence of any tender feeling, the fierce, self-congratulatory flame that had beaten up a moment ago at the thought that her reticence with the god was justified, suddenly wavered. Their tragedy, in her hands, had not engendered any pity or warmth towards them. It only mattered in reference to herself. Another weapon of defense for her use against the god she had taken it almost calculatedly and added it to her arsenal without any change of countenance toward its owners. And against this, she contrasted Dane and Jan in the moments after Tolman had asked his horrible questions, how should I speak to my wife of a death so empty of meaning? How shall I tell it to myself? Neither of them had said anything in response, but as though moved by a reflex deep and instinctual, had left their seats, their faces filled with sorrow as urgent as hands reaching out. They had come to sit on either side of Toman, who had begun weeping in an awful, silent way. They had joined him in his tears, Jan holding his hand helplessly, and Dane with his fists tucked taut between his knees. Lara, watching from her seat, had felt suddenly distinct from them, of another kin, perhaps, Whatever unspoken law they had by nature answered, she did not hear it, nor feel it in her bones as they seemed to. She had no impulse to weep at the sight of Toman's grief. She was inert, unmoved. At the time this had not concerned her, but now, lying awake in the winter night, she was confronted with a thought, grave and inarguable. You should have cared. But how could I, she argued, when nothing in me was moved to care? You should have cared. Angrily, she said aloud, I cannot make pity come when I call. It is not my fault. You cannot make life where you are dead, and yet you should live. It is not good that you are dead. She remembered Jan's younger sister looking up at her with reproach and fear. You are dead, she had said. 
don't you know that's bad? And she remembered Jan's own words after they had left Nena's house in disgrace. You are not whole, Lara. Wholeness, she realized with a stab of clarity, would have cared. Wholeness would have wept with Toman. And she felt shame. Shame for her emptiness, her muddied steps marring the fresh sweep of grass in that underground hall, her body receiving and inert, unresponsive, as Toron poured himself out for her. In the face of beauty, she produced deadness. She sat up in her bed, wanting somehow to escape herself, to escape this growing sense of her own inadequacy. She pushed back the thick weight of quilt that covered her and swung her legs over the side of the mattress, finding her slippers with her toes groping in the dark. The winter lion followed her like velvet as she went to the room's long window and unlatched its little whorl of a catch stepping out onto the tiny balcony there and looking out across the roofs of neighboring houses to the mountains, the cold stars glinting in droves above them. Slowly the warmth from her winter lion took up residence in her body, and she felt washed in pleasure the clean icy air touching her face, filling her lungs, but powerless to chill her. She breathed deeply, gripping the balcony rail. You should have cared. And where before she had reacted with anger to defend herself, now it was as though she collapsed in defeat before the stark truth of the accusation. I know, she said, staring over the tops of the mountains. I know, but what can I do? To care takes a heart awake, alive, and loving. The peddler woman had told her that those who could not pay the lamia for a gutting must learn to live with dead hearts unless they gave their hearts to the god. In that moment, Lara knew that she could never learn to live with deadness within her. How could she be satisfied with it, having once seen life? How could she be content to remain dead, absorbing and receiving, but never giving, never creating anything beautiful in return? Behind her, the window's latch opened with a soft click. She turned. Jan stood in the open window. Do you want company? Jan asked quietly. Lara nodded. By unspoken agreement, the girls returned to the room where they sat facing one another on Lara's bed, each wrapped in quilts and leaning against their winter lions. 
Lara opened her mouth to speak and was struck dumb suddenly by a revelation. She was looking at Jan as though seeing her for the first time, aware of the details of her, aware with trembling wonder of Jan's existence apart from her own. She saw the chapping on Jan's knuckles and how the third nail on her right hand had been trimmed down to the quick after a break. Jan's hair, the color of tea, had grown out slightly around her tilted ears and the nape of her neck. Her skin flushed a muted spring green, an odd mark just beneath the lobe of her right ear stood out against the skin, had she had it always. Lara saw, too, the pale trace of a long-heeled scar along Jan's neck, below the jaw, and wondered how it had come to be there. This young woman had a life, separate from hers, a life with memory and pleasure and hurt whose history had begun without reference to Lara's own. The revelation of Jan's otherness deepened into a piercing understanding of how precious, precious, precious every scrap of her was. How much Jan mattered. How her thoughts, her existence in the world, were like phrases of poetry as yet uncomposed. What a momentous thing it was to be allowed to speak with this creature. What honor to have her attention and friendship. Lara felt as though her eyes, though open, had been unblinded and struck with deepest sight. What is it? Jan said, looking at Lara with curiosity. But she found herself utterly unable to articulate this new awareness she had. Those first early wonderings about the hearts of the other children she had seen now and then passing her childhood home, what were they? Half-hearted and weak in comparison with this poignancy. Lara reached out and took Jan's hands, lying open on the faded blue quilt before her. For lack of words weighty enough, she said, Thank you, and kissed the backs of Jan's hands. Then the winter lions rose. They uncurled themselves from around the girls and stood there on the bed, the great looming bulk of each like a thundercloud. Lara, still holding Jan's hands, looked up at them without fear. She had forgotten herself in the wonder of Jan's spirit, its importance, its beauty. The two beasts lowered their heads and breathed upon Lara's breast, a spreading warmth. And she felt the heart seed enter and quicken, where before had been barren. 
Jan was pressing her hands, smiling in sudden understanding. You're welcome, she said, and kissed Lara's hands in return. They had remained awake for several hours that night, talking. Lara asking questions of Jan, all manner of them, what her brother Dioran had been like, when she first became fond of yams, why she had gone to the goddess and whether her parents had accompanied her, how often she had taken their oxen on trading routes, what she feared, what she loved. Her shame grew as it became clear to her how little she knew of this other girl who had left her family, home, and comfort to walk beside her. And yet at the same time, her shame became less important as she pushed deeper into seeing Jan without reference to herself. Somehow she wanted to laugh with an emotion very like relief, release. She was like a trapped thing, finally drawn out from her prison, able to escape into or through the mind of another. Jan let the questions come tumbling each upon the heels of the last. She lay back on the quilts, gesticulating with her quick fingers as she answered. And soon, in speaking of Diaron, Jan turned impulsively up on her side and told what she had confided in Dane told of the blow struck by Lara's arrival. I've no notion where my brother is, she said, and the goddess has not told me. Lara took this in. In all your talking with your goddess, she said, frowning, she's not given you the answer you want most. Jan shook her head. Lara stared at her. It seems cruel of her. I cannot see why you... She stopped. She had been about to say, why you keep running to her. But she felt somehow that she could not say this without lacing it with some measure of disgust. And she knew this would hurt Jan. I know, Jan said. It seems cruel. But I'll walk through the seeming. Lara received this without making any response. They lay quietly, their winter lions shifting a long limb upon the bed, lashing a tail, giving a barely heard snuffle in their sleep. What I do not understand, Lara said at last, is why this, this finding is so... has so much pleasure. When the other hurt, was it also for you... She made a vague movement of helpless inability to catch at the words she wanted, lifting her hands and then letting them fall back. Jan rolled over onto her stomach, cupping her chin against her palm and looking up at Lara. I'll tell you some day how it was with me, she said. And I think... Well, you see plants grow. Their growing means deaths. 
things cracking and dropping away, but it also means the appearance of beauties. Seems the same with us. It's a token... And she too, like Lara, fell into a wordless gesture as she searched for the end of her thought. Of what? She shifted to lie back again, tucking both hands beneath her head. A token of how coming alive is worth many deaths, I suppose. But this time I felt no death at all, only joy, yes. Jan turned her head to meet Lara's gaze. This isn't the end, though. You're tasting, not full. You mean then that there will be pain someday? Jan paused. What was the passage you said you found? Lara quoted, To seek and find a heart, and to give it to life, one must come upon the summer. And I do not mean that summer of our world. But this is a mystery, and only the one who seeks will find it out. The summer sun alone can ripen love to wake and feed a heart, for of the many things encountered in the waking world, the heart is the hungriest of them all. Jan nodded. And the greatest part of giving your hearts to life is giving over to death the things that would keep them dead. Why should I hesitate to do that? Lara said. Anything that would keep my heart stirred is my enemy. Yes, but your enemy is within you. Even so, Lara began. You might be surprised, Jan interrupted, at how much it feels like you yourself. At how dear you hold it. Lara was silent. The cutting must come very close into the root, Jan said. They joined the others for breakfast in a haze of sleepiness, but this did not seem to matter. The family was silent, seeming wrapped in solitary concerns. Even Leah felt the gloom and kept quieter than usual. Dane ate and thanked his hosts with grave respect, then told them he would go out for the day into the village, perhaps walking in the mountains. He did not expect to return before nightfall and would not ask them to wait the evening meal for him. Toman and Nissa nodded, a hint of relief showing in their eyes. Why? Leah piped up. You just came! Nissa said, almost without thinking. He wants to go and talk with his god. The bitter tone underlying her words was unconscious. Dane made no answer. And a guest, Toman said swiftly to his daughter, is always free to come and go as he pleases. Lara could see the confusion on the little girl's face, mingled with disappointment. 
Perhaps she had anticipated a day filled with stories about the moon traveler. But her mother soon excused them both and retired with her to begin work on the day's lessons. Thomann's two sons left shortly afterward, John to his apprenticeship, Dion to join his mother and sister, and beset his own lessons. When they had gone, Jan and Lara rose to help Thomann clear the remaining food. Dane, too, helped, then bid them all farewell when the work was done. He had a light pack with him, and his winter lion followed him, disappearing around the corner of the door in one quick silver movement. Lara, in her new awareness of Jan, saw a strange, continuing kind of look on the other girl's face, watching Dane go. She turned it over in her mind and wondered. And I see that you have woken weary from your sleep, Thomann said to them when the room was empty but for themselves. The girls looked at each other sheepishly. Perhaps it is that you would like to sleep longer this day. I shall have you called for the midday meal, and afterwards, if you choose, you may accompany me in my work. I work in many homes to repair and beautify them, and there is much even for unskilled hands to do. You would see many parts of the city thus. They agreed, gratefully, turning and padding with their winter lions upstairs to return to bed. When, as promised, Thomann woke them for the midday meal, they ate thick bread with a butter flavoured with herbs and several kinds of fruit. Then Nyssa served a creamy chocolate drink, mild in warmth, and saw them out with her husband. They each had lined coats and their winter lions, and they found that even the sharp cold of that day the kind dropped by a snowless sky and shafted into faces by an unfriendly wind, did not discomfit them as they walked through the streets in Thomann's wake, though they still held their arms close in to their sides and did not move so easily and openly as Thomann did. He showed them a simple handshape to use when they passed anyone in the streets, one used by guests to signify greeting. This, he explained, would make clear both their status as foreigners and their acceptance into a local home. Lara asked if they would be treated differently if they did not use it, and Thoman, though he did not smile, seemed amused as he answered that the gesture was for the purpose of categorization, the Mahoganys took great pleasure in things well-placed, and this pleasure they translated into their social lives. Their intricate system of naming and greeting identified one's profession, family of origin, and family of marriage, if any. A traveller who knew none of the hand-shapes for greeting would likely be approached with questions about her journey, her family and home, and her skills, and these lengthy inquiries would make their progress to Taman's place of work very slow indeed. Few of his country folk, he told them wryly, could pass up the novelty of a person uncategorized. 
such a small number of foreigners ever came to their lands. So Jan and Lara held up their fingers in the way he showed them, smiling faintly at each person they met in the street. And in this way, they passed quickly from the easternmost quarter of the city into the streets circling the great wooden meeting-house of the Gan. Many tradesfolk kept shops in these streets, and Toman had a workshop here where he made carven things, trellises, frames and arches, furniture. The front half of the building was a small shop run by Nissa and Tion twice a week, and the back was Toman's workspace. He completed a good number of repairs here as well, going out to houses in the village and cutting away the broken pieces to carve replacements or supporting designs in his shop. Often, however, he would spend the whole day at the homes themselves, making changes and working directly with the wood of doorways, walls, ceilings. The Mahoganies had many skilled workers like Toman, for the working of wood was an especial art of that people, and their blood affinity with it made their woodwork of such quality unsurpassed among all the peoples. Their children learned young the ways of carving and curing, painting wood, staining wood, polishing wood, cutting it in such a way as to use the very grain in the final effect. They had chosen the name Mahogany after the most coveted of their woods and after their means of self-governance, the Ghani, for these two things they wished to be known in the wider world. Unlike the other peoples, the Mahoganies held concourse with the fairies of the neighboring lands, crafting for them fine goblets and screens of thin woods the fairies brought unwrought to their artisans. In exchange for these gifts, which the fairies prized beyond any possessions, they gave to the Mahoganies a boon unheard of. At the age of maturing, when first able to greet the ice and snow with no winter lion beside, each boy and girl of the Mahoganies would be taken by the fairies to their hidden groves, where the fairies gave each of the children a draught of cold water that sent them into a sleep deeper than any they had yet known. This sleep would carry the child through three days and nights, and while she slept, the grove itself would quicken to the child's life, sensing her wood affinity, beech, rowan, pine, cherry, and causing blooms or vines or saplings to grow up around her in the night. Then the fairies in their dancing rings would hold revelry until the early dawn, where they would gather and crush the blossoms or the bark for the child, distilling these into marvelous dyes they gave to her on her waking. When a mahogany girl returned from her long sleep, she added to herself another name to indicate her transition from childhood to young womanhood. A boy, too, added a name and became a young man among his people. And each young man and young woman would deliver the die unto others of the mahogany craftswomen, the talisman-makers, who with these dyes stained sashes, bands, and jewellery, for some a circlet of wood, for some a patterned sash. 
for others a light hoop for the ear, for yet others an amulet worn on dark, thin leather about the neck. No two talismans were alike, for no two dyes gotten of the fairies were alike. And these talismans the mahoganies would keep until death, when they could be buried or burned, but not kept, only held in memory by those who remained. During the final night in the fairy groves, as the dancing ring wheeled under the stars, it was said that the scents released from the child's leaves and flowers gave dreams of great potency, beauty, awe, or, at times, and rarely, of prophecy. These dreams the child could speak of to no one until marriage, and then only unto wife or husband. But if a mahogany chose not to marry, he could come and stand before the gathering of the people for their moon festival at the end of autumn, and in the presence of all he could tell his dreams aloud. In this way much delight and wisdom came to the whole community, and because of this the mahoganies held in high honour those among them who remained unwed. All of these things Toman told them that afternoon, as they helped him work, sweeping the carving floor, stacking the unhewn lumber, holding pieces in place as he whittled them to fit. Lara felt her fingertips thrill with the imagining of the things he spoke, and the time seemed to pass very quickly, so that soon it was time to return to the house for the evening meal. And I have been told this morning, Toman said, as they shut the door of his shop and began the journey home, that the gun will gather tomorrow and that we shall take you to them and ask for our home to be your haven through this winter. It is not likely they will deny you, for though such things are rare among us, they are not unheard of nor unwelcome. Yet we must make it known to the gun. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Benavraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon. We make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much.